When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now, we re-ran an entire episode from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. But even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers, and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes, would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, the 14th episode of Risk ever made. It premiered in April of 2010, and it's called Dilemmas. We about to engage in some risky behaviors, y'all. If you wanna go and taunt some geese, it's a risk. If you pluralize moose as beasts, it's a risk. Write an essay without hitting say, it's a risk. A funky mirror when you're having a shade, it's a risk. Don't ever go to a cop and call them pigs unless you scored risky on the Myers Briggs. Now put your hands in the air if you're taking a risk and wave them to the side like your Carlton fist. You probably don't understand that reference unless you're a big baseball fan. I just took a risk. That's right, kids. It's time to go all risky with it up in here. Because this is the show where people tell true tales they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and all the stories from today's episode come from the Risk live show at 92Y Tribeca a couple weeks ago. We were looking at dilemmas that night. Hard choices with big consequences. Let's kick things off with Margot Lightman who hosts the fantastic show Strip Stories at the UCB Theater in New York. This is called Taking Tyler by Surprise. So my first job, one of my first jobs when I moved to New York City was that I worked at a school on the Upper East Side for overprivileged children. And 
I lasted a year in that environment. At the end of the year, I quit, which is a whole other story. They asked me to make an activity wheel. I said that I wouldn't conform to that, and I walked out, long story. Uh, but I made sure to take the phone numbers of all the least annoying kids before I left so I could babysit them on the side for a profit. And uh, I did, and I got about five clients, and I started babysitting these wealthy children on the Upper East Side. And when I say wealthy, I mean, there were things I saw I, that, that I will never see again. Like, I, I babysat a child whose apartment was an entire floor of a high-rise building, the entire floor, which is normally, like, about 12 apartments was just theirs. I babysat children who had elevators in their apartment buildings because their apartments alone were six floors high. Um, but the best of these kids was this one kid, uh, Tyler Parkinson, because Tyler was more down to earth because his parents, they owned a country house that they lived in on the weekends, but on the weekdays, they lived in a small studio on the Upper East Side in a doorman building. And I thought that was really cool that they were really down to earth. And so I started babysitting him more frequently than the others. And it was awesome. Tyler was awesome. And also, like, his mom would give us a per diem, so I would have all this money to spend with him. So I would do all of these things that I would love to do as a grown woman, which are bowling, arcades, paintball, you know, things like that I started doing with this kid. And I would just, it was so much fun, like Dylan's Candy Bar, like just loving my new life with my new son, not my kid. <laughs> and so we started hanging out. And then, like, but it was summer, and basically the only I, all I would do was pick him up from camp at three, babysit him until six thirty, till his mom came home. And a lot of times in that time, I'm an actor, and I would have auditions, so I would have to bring Tyler to my auditions, and and I'd be like, he's not my son. People would be like, I know you, you don't have your shit together enough to have a child. We know it's not your son, but I would always announce it wasn't my son, and. And then afterward, and then he started giving me notes on my auditions. And he would be like, he would come in and he'd be like, you know, I really didn't believe that you like Trident. I didn't believe you. <laughs> and I was like, really? And he was so observant. He was like a little Martin Scorsese in the making. I loved him. And so we start having this really honest relationship where he's just like open. He'll be like, you blew it on the Snickers. You're not going to book it. Or he'd be like, oh my God, you totally are going to get that Pantene commercial. And usually he was right. So he started being honest with me. So one day after he told me that I blew it on the Snickers, I remember very vividly because I did, uh, he, I thought that I would open up with him a little bit and ask him a little bit about his life. So I said, you know, so where does everyone fit in this apartment at night? How does everyone sleep here? And he goes, well, I sleep on the bed here and my mom sleeps on the pull-out couch. And I said, oh, okay, well, where does your dad sleep? And he said, oh, he doesn't sleep here. And I said, oh, okay, so your dad lives at the country house all week and then you're all together on the weekends? And he said, no, my dad has a different country house in the same town and me and my mom have another. So then I said, oh, so your parents are divorced. I didn't realize that. And he was like, no. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. Are, are they separated? And he was like, no, they're married. And then I stopped because here's the dilemma. They're clearly fucking divorced, right? But they're not telling him. And I, I was like, wow. I, they're lying to this child in some way or another. He thinks that this is normal and this is not how things work. And I, I don't want to be the person to lie to a child because I was lied to as a child. When I was in fifth grade, I was at a Jersey Shore beach cleanup. That's where I'm from, can you tell? And, um, and we were cleaning up the beach and the woman who looked like Julie Haggerty that was running at the lady from the airplane, like she was like, she said to all, and I thought she was so cool, and she said to all of us, you know, if you find anything that's strange or makes you uncomfortable, make sure to bring bring it to me and I'll take care of it. I don't want anyone to feel unsafe because where I grew up, there were hypodermic needles everywhere. So um, 
I was like went around hunting to try to find something unsafe because I wanted the attention. And before <laughs> before I could find something, someone beat me to it. So this kid found this glass pipe, and I'm in fifth grade, and I don't really know what that is. So the kid with the glass pipe walks up to Julia Haggerty lady, and he's like, I, I found this. And she was like, everyone stop. And she stops us and she goes, this is, this is a crack pipe. This is what drug addicts use to smoke crack out of. So if you find any more of these children, you know, I don't want you to be uncomfortable. I just want you to know, like basically she was like, there are drug addicts in your neighborhood. You are unsafe. You can't sleep at night. Like that's, and I, so I was like, God damn it. I want to find a crack pipe. I want to, I want to the satisfaction. So I start looking and all I can find is this little, um, this little plastic tube. So I bring it to her and I'm like, I think I found another version of a crack pipe. So I hand her the plastic tube and she goes, oh, and I was like, aren't you gonna stop everything? She's like, no, um, I actually, I don't know what this is. Um, I, had, I just have no idea what this is. I just can't, I don't know. So I'm gonna put it in the garbage just to be safe, but I'm not quite sure what it is, but you shouldn't feel unsafe. And I was like, okay cut to six months later, um, you know, I get my period for the first time and my mom's giving me a lecture on like what to, like a maxi pad and a tampon and she's showing my mom's like, this is a maxi pad, this is a tampon. I'm like, that's a tampon? She's like, yeah. And she's like, and this is the tampon applicator. I'm like, this is a tampon? This is a fucking tampon applicator? (laughs) Because the woman on the beach in her 40s told me she had no idea what this was. My mother's like, no, she knew what it was. And I was like, well, why did she lie to me? And my mom was like, well, maybe she was trying to protect you. I'm like, protect me from menstruation, from the human body? I don't, not protect me from crack, but you're going to protect me from this? Like, I was so angered. And then I hated Airplane. I hated that Julie Haggerty. I hated it all. And I have all this rage towards this woman now, you know, that I don't even, that's out of my life. And I was, and really in that moment, I was like, I'm never lying to kids. I will never, kid, even if it makes a kid uncomfortable, I'm not lying to them because I felt so betrayed by this Tampax incident. So I'm sitting there with Tyler Peterson and his parents are clearly divorced and they're clearly lying to him and I'm in a position like the Julie Haggerty lady where I can lie and people tell me I resemble Uma Thurman and I don't want him to have a rage against her so I'm freaking out and so finally I'm just like Tyler I think I think your parents might be divorced and he was like why do you say that and I was like because when families are together, they live in the same home, but when they're separated, divorced, they live separately. What have they told you? And he goes, I don't know. They've never told me anything. This is just how it is. And I said, well, did they ever live in the same place? And he was like, yeah, a long time ago. And I said, well, what happened when your dad left? He goes, no one told me anything. And I was like, so this has been going on? He's like, I don't know, like five or six years? He was about eight. So I felt terrible and we're sitting there in silence and I'm like oh god did I do the right thing I kind of dropped a bomb on this child and then he goes I want to call my dad and I was like do it (laughs) so he picks up the phone and he's like dialing the work number and he's like dad What's going on? I, you know, like, you and mom don't live together, yet you say that you're married. We never are all together. Why am I always separate with you and separate with mom? Like, I, I have a reliable source here. I know what's really going on. And then, and then, they're, they're like, there's, and I don't hear what's going on on the other end. And then he's like, fine. And he hangs up. I go, well, what did he say? He goes, he said he's coming over. I was like, oh, oh, God, this is getting crazy. So, so then, <laughs> and his father had this Austrian accent, which just made him terrifying to me. And, and so, 
And then he calls, then he's like, then he goes, I want to call my mom. And then suddenly I'm like, this is like a little Michael Douglas and falling down. Like, this is the day he's not taking shit anymore from anybody. So I'm like, yeah, go for it. Call your mom. Let's do this. You know, let's just take care of your life. Like, no idea of what's going to happen down the road for me. But I'm like, this is awesome. Like, woo! Okay. So, so then we call the mom. And the mom's, and then he's like, look, same thing. You know, you and dad are never together. I don't even understand if we're a family. Why aren't we together? I hear that families are supposed to sleep in the same house. And we don't sleep in the same house house and you're lying to me about something and why didn't you explain anything when dad moved out and so then the mom then he goes hold on and he goes she wants to talk to you and I was like oh <laughs> okay so then I get on the phone and these were like the waspiest Upper East Side people you could ever meet and she was like hi Margo um, I'm getting out of work early work's a little slow so I'm gonna come home I was like you're lying to me. Work is not slow. That's not why you're coming. But she's like, so um, I'll see you in a little bit. And, you know, just keep Tyler occupied. And I'm going to be coming home a little early. And I said, okay. So now I'm sitting there in the middle. And then we're just like pacing, you know, like, like, all right, what's next? What's next? So, and then, and then the door, the doorman buzzer rings. And the doorman's like, I have, I have, I have a Mr. Parkinson downstairs. And I'm like, they're divorced. If he doesn't have fucking keys, if he has to buzz up, then they are divorced. So, so then I'm like, okay, let him in. So now it's me, little Tyler, and Mr. Parkinson, who is Austrian, and he's just like, hello, Margo. And I'm like, hi. Uh, and he's like, so we're just going to wait for, for Tyler's mother. And I'm like, okay, awesome, great. And this was a, a, a Tuesday of the week, and I was so I had worked the three hours the day before, and I'd put in about an hour and a half of this day. So it's, I've worked four and a half hours total by this point of my weekly shift there. So then the mother walks in, and then the mom's like, you know, I think that we'll all just... I think we're all just going to go to the country house together. Would you mind packing a bag, Tyler? And he's looking at me, and I'm like, do it. So Tyler starts packing a bag, and then the two of them start talking in a corner, and I'm like, are they going away together? I think they're going away together as a family. And this is what I, I started getting kind of involved. I'm like, well, how is this going to end? They're going to go. They're going away, all three of them. They're all in the same room, and they're going to either talk it out and explain to him what's really going on, or the parents are going to try to work it out between them. But they're all together right now and they're gonna talk to each other. And I felt this complete sigh of relief, like, well, they'll probably invite me to go, you know, because, like, they're so, they're so grateful for me and their life and, like, they really like me now and, like, I feel like I'm gonna be in this child's life forever, you know? And then the father comes over and he hands me this envelope and he's like, thank you, Margo, we won't be needing you any further. And I said, oh, okay. And he's like, you know, we, we're going to go away for a while and, uh, you know, his mom and I are gonna take some time off the rest of the summer. And I said, all right, so that's it. And they're like, that's it. And I said, okay. And I had this sinking feeling because I was dying to know what happened after I left. But I got in the elevator and I opened the envelope and I had walk worked four and a half hours total that week. And I opened the envelope and there was $550 in cash in it. And I thought, that's, that's about my price to stay out of your family. Uh, <laughs> and to walk away and not know how this ends. And it, was, and it was basically hush money, so I would never, ever speak of this again. As you can see right now, I am never speaking of it ever again. Thank you.
little ditty there by Mr. Jordan Cooper. Now, our next story comes from the host of the popular web series, This Week in Blackness. That would be Elon James White, and this is An Eye for an Eye. I remember it was uh, my freshman year of high school. Um, I actually was, it was the first day and I had, I was actually in school. It was a, it was a thing because I was at art and design high school and that was a big thing in my house because I had gotten accepted to two different schools. I had gotten accepted to art and design and had gotten accepted to Brooklyn tech. And I decided I wanted to be an artist and my grandfather told me to go fuck myself. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't think that was a great idea. Nor did anyone in my family, in all honesty. Uh, they, everyone decided this was a terrible idea. This is like, they, why, why go to Brooklyn Tech? You can, if you want to diddle or, or draw, whatever you call it, um, you can go like, like be an architect, do something like that or whatever. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to, I wanted to draw. I wanted to, to, to show my art to the world. And, uh, and I actually won that fight. I won that fight. I, I made a decision. I just said, I'm going to go to art and design. And they let me. And it was amazing because it was the first day there. And I, I'll tell you right now, I wasn't a very cool person <laughs> in general. Don't judge me by the sweater vest. But then I was terribly uncool. Uh, and I remember I thought that high school was going to be the big thing. I was going to just totally change everything. I was going to be awesome. It's going to be great. I was in Manhattan because I'm from Brooklyn. And it was, I had, it was my first time to travel to Manhattan by myself. It was amazing. It was, I, everything was going to be spectacular. And I remember seeing someone in front of me. Uh, there was this very hot girl. First day of high school, hot chick. I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, and it was this young lady in front of me, and she, like, I, just, I thought she was very attractive, and obviously a lot of people thought she was very attractive, because I could hear dudes behind me st- like, talking about her, and they were like making bets with themselves, like, oh man, I bet you can't get a number, I bet you can't get a number, and they were going back and forth. The one of the dudes actually got up, went down there, and he got her number, and I was like, holy shit, it worked. Uh, I didn't know that, like, this is gonna be high school, you just walk up to girls and they just give you their number, it's gonna be fantastic. Um, and so that was that. We were all, we were all uh, in a room in the auditorium because uh, that first day they overbooked gym. And so they decided that half of us got to go to gym and half of us didn't. I was like, thank God I'm not very athletic. Um, so to find out a few weeks later, I ended up in the same class as the hot girl in front of me. And her name, just like mine, was Elon, which I found very strange. Uh, and it was cool. We got to know each other. We became friends. And another dude became friends with us. His name was James, which is how I go now, which is all very strange. Just the idea of this Elon, there's James. And we all became cool. And now you have to understand, James was in love with Elon. Absolutely in love. And now you have to also understand that James was about four foot three. Uh, and she was like five foot, it was like bad. Like, like, like he was really, really small. And he was just in love, just constantly professing his love all the time. And, and he would tell her about like, because the dude, like she was dating, the guy who the first day of school, he was like this, uh, a junior. And like, he was like, why are you with him? You want, what do you think a junior wants with a freshman? It's ridiculous. You want me, you want me. And I, and he would complain to me about this all the time. And I, one day I just was tired. I was like, dude, relax. Okay, I was there the first day, dude met her. It can't last, it was a bet, okay? He only went down there because it was a bet. Just calm down, wait your turn, it might happen. About a day and a half later, Elon walks up to me and goes, hey, um, did my boyfriend ask me to go out with him on a bet? And I'm like, what? Um, (laughs) 
I don't, what? And she, and she asked me again, and I, and, and I, 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 had, I had a decision to make. I had to say, am I going to tell her the truth? And I was young and stupid, so I told her yes. It wasn't, I mean, that was what happened then, but I'm sure he loves you now. Like, that's what I, I threw out there. So, so you have to also understand that, that her boyfriend now, whose name was Quan, was also six foot four, and I was still not, I was about 5'2". I was like tall for my, my age at the time, but 5'2", 6'4", it was not a good thing. And so then, like, he finds out that, like, I told her, and all of a sudden it becomes a thing, and I'm running around school, because, like, my freshman year, not very good now, because there's a 6'4 dude who wants to kill me. And it, it was cool for a while, like, I was able to dodge him, I was able to go down hallways when I saw him, got away, it was fine. Until they re, uh, put, they put Jim back on, <laughs> And we were in the same gym class. And so now when everyone's doing laps around the gym, I was doing 17 laps because I'm running from dude who wants to kill me. And, 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 and it, wasn't, it wasn't pleasant, if, if you will. Like, just understand, not pleasant at all. So one day, Elon comes up to me and tells me that she wants me to deliver a note to Quan because she's not going to be in gym that day. And she says, whatever you do, do not read this note. Do not read it. And so she walks away, and I immediately read the note. <laughs> and it's a breakup letter. She's breaking up with Quan, and she's having me deliver the breakup note. And so I had a decision to make. <laughs> do I tell her, I read your note, and fuck you, I'm not bringing this to him? Or do I decide just like, man, and just like take it over? And as I said before, I was young and stupid. So I deliver the note to Quan, and I give it to him in gym, and I just take the hell off. You know what I mean? Just like running around doing my 17 laps as I normally do. And things were, things were unpleasant, as I said before. And one day in the locker room, like, like I don't think you understand, understand 14-year-old boys. We're idiots. All right, we're just fucking around, just doing dumb shit in the, in the uh, locker room. Like someone took down a fire extinguisher, we're shooting it around. We're just like, ha, ah, it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> And Quan, his locker was in the very back of the locker room. Like, mine was in the very front. And I remember him, he called me over. He's like, hey, hey, come back here. And I said, no. <laughs> because that seems very stupid to me. And he said, he asked me again, come back here. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to stay over here. And it was at this point that Quan pulled out a gun. And now, I know that you all have heard of the whole idea of fight or flight. You know what I mean? That idea like when you're in, in, with intense danger, you will do something. You will, you will either fight for your life or you will run away. And at this very moment, I learned that my fight or flight response was to stand perfectly still. <laughs> that is what I do. I don't know if I was a chameleon in another life. I don't, I, I don't know what my plan was. But that's what I do. I just stopped and literally I, like, I was half my jeans were off, so like one pant leg on, one pant leg off, and I'm just standing and just freeze. And he fires. And he misses. And at that point, literally, I, it was like slow motion. I was like literally like, really? He just missed? Like, like literally the like, how is that possible? But guess what? I don't move. I don't, I, I don't move, because that's too much like being bright. I've told you before I wasn't bright. And so he fires again, and the next shot hits me in the face. Now, I don't know if you've been shot in the face before, but it's terribly not fun. <laughs> so literally, I 
like it hits, I know something's happening, I throw myself out the door. Just immediately just throw myself out the door and start yelling bloody murder. Okay, just like and I'm yelling out his fault like Quan Golden shot me! And people are like, what did you just say? Quan Golden shot me! And like he runs outside, he's like, no, I don't know what he's talking about, man. Nah, see, no, we were playing with paper clips, right? And we hit a he got a paper clip, hit him in the face, and that was his story. This is what he told everyone. So they bring me inside the nurse's room, uh, nurse's office that was like really right next to the gym. And you, I don't know, like I said, you probably haven't been shot before in the face. When you get shot, like, because it went into my eye. Uh, and when you, one eye closes from trauma, the other eye will immediately close thereafter. And so I couldn't really see a lot. I just knew I was hearing people freak out. And so I heard someone actually call my mother while I was in the room and I was laying down and no one knew exactly. They heard, they, I said I got shot, but no one believed it because my eyes were just shut and I just, and, and you just can't believe a kid who just yells to get shot, I guess. Um, and they call my mom and they say, this is the actual conversation that happened. They go, good afternoon, Miss White. Hi, this is the High School of Art and Design. I just wanted to let you know that your son has been shot. <laughs> and now, I'll, I couldn't hear her, really. I could just hear like the, <laughs> and they were like, oh, oh no, oh no, in the face. <laughs> this woman obviously had never taken counseling. <laughs> and so I said, can I speak to her? Now I had been laying down the entire time, laying down, I wasn't uh, uh, really paying attention. I was like, just really trying to deal with being shot. And I got up for the first time, and when I stood up, I leaned forward. And when I leaned forward, for the first time, blood started to come down my face. And in the room, the entire room just starts yelling, Dear Lord, he's bleeding, he's bleeding! And my mom is still on the phone. <laughs> and so I get to the phone, and my mother, obviously distraught, um, she goes, Oh my God, are you all right? Are you all right? And my response was, Well, besides being shot in the face, I'm fine. This is how I realized that at one point I would become a comic. Um, because that was my response. And so they, everyone freaks out. I get taken out by ambulance. Everyone's like, the hallway's in line. They're staring at me. Everyone's freaking out. I hear people on the, on the, on the, on the uh, walkie-talkies yelling, White just got shot. White just got shot. Which just sounds weird. Um, <laughs> and so I get, I get taken to the hospital. And they find out I was, what he had was an air rifle. That was that actually shot like it was for, like it's for hunting or dumb shit like that, and it shot a ball into my head about this big and bright orange and metal, and it went in and had it hit me in the temple I would have died, and had it went over a little bit to the uh, to the left I would have died. It actually lodged itself right in my skull, and so they had to, like, they saw, they found out what happened after the X-rays and everything, and then they were able to take it out with a magnet. They actually pulled it back out and it caused trauma going in and caused trauma going out. So then they came to my mom and they gave her a very, very tough choice. They said, hey, we can hope that your son's eye heals so that he, that, like, it, and it'll be fine, but if we do wait that long, there's something called sympathetic ophthalmium, which means that hit the bad eye will actually start to take vision from the good eye and he might not be able to see ever again. Or you can choose right now to have the eye removed and he will just have one eye for the rest of his life. My mom said, I can't make that decision. And she gave it to me at 14 years old. So I had a decision. Do I decide to be blind or do I decide to have one eye? And uh, for me, it was a pretty quick decision 
because I was 14 and terribly vain. I don't know about you at 14. Maybe you guys were just all like, like, like saving the world and shit. But I was, I was worried. I was terribly worried. I was like, well, if, if, I, have, if, if, I, if I go blind, I'm going to have like the weird fucked up eyes, aren't I? And, I'm gonna, and people are going to just be able to obviously tell I'm blind. That, well, that won't be cool. But if, I, if they just take it out now, you mean I can get like a prosthesis and, and, I can, and I'll look normal? And they're like, yes, for the most part, you'll look normal. I'm like, fine, take the shit out. Like immediately. It wasn't even a question for me. Like, I'd much rather just have one eye than fuck... Oh, besides the fact that I might be blind. And uh, that's what happened. Till this, t- this very day, I actually have a prosthesis in my face. Some of you might not uh, be aware of it, but yes, I actually have... It's this side, just in case you were wondering. Um, I have a prosthesis. And it's a decision that I never really regretted. It was really ne- never necessary. Because I realized that it was, it was in fact, that now, now that I'm not so vain, I know the smart decision was to actually have the eye removed because it would have sucked to be blind. I don't know if you guys, anyone blind here? No, good. Um, it would have sucked. Uh, and, uh, and my mom has always backed me on that decision. And for that, I am internally grateful. Thank you very much. I'll risk it all for you. I'll take my fears away, yeah I'll try a bit of everything today But I won't take it in the butt I want a clean phone, No, I won't take it in the butt, yeah Get away from the butt, No, I won't take it from behind really can't endorse the point of view of Johnny Mantra there. For God's sake, it's 2010, people. Take it up the butt. Now, here is a lovely lady, an inspiration to so many performers. This is Virginia Scott going down to Clown Town. So it was a uh, freezing day in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and just like it had been a freezing day the day before that, and a freezing day the day before that. Um, But on this day, I am on the phone with Christopher Bays, who I consider to be America's greatest clown. Yeah, really. Uh, I know for many of you that might not set you all a Twitter. but I am starstruck, and it's, I'm trying just to like seem kind of professional on the phone, and, and I'm just freaking out. Um, Chris has called me up in response to a letter that I sent him, uh, care of the Teatro de la Jeune Lune, where he is a clown and a director and a genius. And in this letter, I have told him that I desperately want to learn to make the kind of theater that he makes, which is inventive and magical and funny and beautiful, you know, beautiful, but like, it's like kick your ass beautiful. Um, and, um, and now he's called me up and I'm so hoping that it's because he's going to offer to mentor me, to teach me to be the kind of director that he is. Um, instead, he uh, tells me that if I really want to make the kind of theater he makes, uh, I myself have to uh, study to be uh, a clown. And, um, I was kind of hoping to avoid that part, you know? 
I, I wanted to be sort of like behind the scenes, uh, sort of like wrangling the clowns, but not, you know, upon the stage. Um, because I actually had been a child actor, um, but I wasn't one of those kids who like has what it takes to be a star. Uh, I, I really didn't have what it takes to be a star. Um, I was really shy and really serious. I rarely spoke above a whisper. Um, I pretty much had what it takes to be a librarian. Um, <laughs> Uh, but my father pushed me into acting because he subscribes to this like perverse parenting style that dictates that he like relentlessly focus on getting his kids to do things that they're terrible at. Um, he really likes to focus on the weakness. Um, and uh, it's true. Uh, my mother also pushed me into acting, but she did it to save on childcare costs. Um, because when I was like seven, she went back to Boston University to get her MFA in directing. And she figured out that if um, she cast me in all the shows she was working on, she wouldn't have to pay a babysitter. Um, and I just found acting traumatizing. Like, uh, I think every time I stepped on stage, I, I may have suffered like a dissociative episode. Um, <laughs> Or at the very least, like a small grand mal seizure. Um, just like bright lights and pounding heart rate and a potential loss of control of bodily functions. Um, and it was all I could do to like whisper my lines. So I think I will go to my grave hearing my mother screaming at me to project. Um, so I tried, which uh, allowed me to have two volume settings. Then I had, the, I had the whispering, and then I had like a determined shouting. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I never even threatened not to go on stage. You know, I just went out there every time, all talentless and determined. There's, um, there's a video of me performing uh, in a show ironically entitled Instant Clowns. Um, and I'm like seven years old, I have pigtails, and I just, I look confused, you know? Like, I'm just like, w why? What am I doing here? Um, but, but resolute, you know? Like, I'm gonna dance as fast as I can lest the desperados start shooting at my feet. Um, so, uh, but my distaste for acting was truthfully not the only reason that I didn't want to follow Christopher Bay's advice and uh, try to become a clown. Um, the other thing ha that happened was that uh, right after uh, my mother graduated from BU, actually like days after, uh, she suffered a, um, a series of debilitating strokes. And um, these left her, you know, pretty much just totally nuts. <laughs> like, um, whole hog, all sheets to the wind wandering pantless through the Red Lobster, making hysterical threats against the management because they've run out of shrimp cocktail. Nuts. And um, when your mother goes bananas, you kind of think that you're gonna be the next one to go bananas too. Um, so I, I had made this promise to myself early on that I was going to avoid doing things that might bring on a psychotic break. You know, like, um, <laughs> I, I, I've never taken hallucinogenic drugs. Um, despite in high school listening to an alarming amount of The Grateful Dead. Um, and I, I don't read self-help books, I do not meditate. You know, when somebody tries to talk to me about the landmark forum, I just go like, la, 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 la. Um, you know, I don't even buy Amway. No cults and no spelunking into my deeper consciousness. It's, uh, it's just too risky. So, um, you know, the idea of going back on stage and then like trying to be a clown on top of that, just, you know, it sounded like a very bad idea. I really thought I, I, I could lose my mind. Um, but on the other hand, I really, really wanted to learn to make clown shows. Um, because for me, making clown shows was like my ticket back. 
you know, my ticket back to, to before my mother went off the rails of a crazy train, um, back to, uh, to when I was at BU, where even though, you know, I didn't like the acting, I loved being at the theater, um, because at the theater, I was surrounded by graduate acting students. <laughs> And they were awesome. Um, and I was uh, like the only kid, so I was like a novelty, so I got a lot of attention. And um, actors, they are a very competitive group of people, so they all wanted to like be the kid's favorite. And they would like, they would hang out with me for hours in the green room, and they would play mastermind with me, and they, they would read my Archie comic books with me. And, and one time I, um, I had to miss trick-or-treating to be at rehearsal, and um, the next day they brought me bags and bags of Halloween candy. There was this one guy named Jay Greenspan who I particularly adored. He was so sweet, and um, he always gave me bear hugs, and he would make me laugh, and he would even do magic tricks for me. Um, he later changed his name to Jason Alexander and became famous for playing George Costanza on TV. And now he's hawking Jenny Craig. So. <laughs> yes, he still likes the Halloween candy. <laughs> um, um, and there was also this guy named Mark Arnold who was so cute and he used to chase me down the hallways underneath the stage and he would catch me up in his arms and throw me in the air. Um, I had a big crush on him. And um, he got to play this part of the witch boy in some play which required him to wear like a flesh-toned unitard for the entirety of Tech Week. It made a big impression. Um, so... Uh, but it wasn't just Mark and Jay. Like, they were all amazing. They danced like dervishes, and, and they, they cried on command, and they, they wore crazy costumes. And um, they could even, they could make me, like, you know, the ultra-serious junior librarian, laugh. I, it, backstage at BU was like magic, you know? It, it was like home. And, and then, you know, my mother got sick, and I was kind of, like, tossed out of the garden. So I was always trying to get back in there, you know? I, I studied theater in school, and then when I uh, graduated from college, I figured I'd be a director, because that way I could be in the theater and not have to act. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it didn't actually work out that well for me. Um, most of the shows that I worked on, even the shows that I went to see, they, um, they were kind of boring and a little dead. Um, the people I was working with were kind of angry and bitter, and you know, now full-grown men in flesh-toned unitards just seem kind of creepy. Um, nobody gave me any Halloween candy. It just it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, until I uh, stumbled upon Christopher Bayes. And I really did. I stumbled upon him. I was um, walking down this unfamiliar street in Minneapolis, and I came upon this tiny hunched figure in black leather. And uh, he was kind of punk rock with uh, curly brown hair and a, and a twinkle in his eye. And uh, he handed me a flyer to his one-man show. And um, the flyer was in black and white, with the exception of a little red nose. So I went to the show, and I went again, and I went again, um, and it, it was a miracle. It, it was full of magic, um, but not like Siegfried and Roy magic, um, or like birthday party clown magic, um, but the oh-so-rarely-seen theatrical magic. Um, Chris played a clown in post-World War II Germany, and um, when he spoke of his longing to have a child, he made a perfect tiny little nursery appear inside a lunchbox. And, and when he talked about his sister's mental illness, he made a tiny red doll's chair float through an expanse of darkness. And at the end of the show, 
the, when the entire theater transformed into a nighttime sky and Chris put on a cloak made of blackness and starlight and disappeared into his, its embrace, I was so ready to follow right behind him. It, it was like I'd come home. So, you know, I wanted in on Clown Town bad. Um, but was I ready to pay with my sanity? Um, I wasn't so sure. And um, the more I found out about, you know, what it would really take to, like, try to be a clown, uh, the more I, like, could feel delirium coming on. Um, like, you know, I could uh, go to the school in Paris, where I would have to study clown and mime, and, <clears throat> and uh, be mocked by the French for two years in French. Um, or there's like a school in the woods of Northern California where when I wasn't on stage, I'd have to live in a teepee and wash my clothes in a stream. Uh, so I, it just didn't seem like a good idea. Uh, so I, I decided no, no to being a clown. Um, but I couldn't really let it go either. I, so I just was kind of stuck. You know, I, um, I ended up just kind of not choosing anything, just kind of farting around in the traditional theater and keeping tabs on the clowns and, and not really making a move. Um, and then I moved to New York City and I found out that Christopher Bayes himself <laughs> was here as well. And, um, and he was offering a clown class open to the public. So I carry the announcement for the class around in my bag for weeks, like thinking through all the scenarios. You know, like the first day of class, I'm asked to do something funny, and instead I just start weeping hysterically, and then I like collapse and pass out, and everybody else in the class looks at each other and is like, okay, she's crazy. Um, or, you know, worst yet, I just suck so badly, and my hero, Christopher Bayes, hates me forever. So the night uh, before the first class, uh, I, the night I had to sign up, decide whether or not to sign up for the first class, I'm uh, in my kitchen and I throw the announcement away in the kitchen garbage. Um, and then I take it back out. Uh, and then I think I, I threw it away again and then I had a cup of coffee. Uh, and I went and got it again and now it's covered in coffee grinds and uh, shrimp cocktail sauce from dinner. And I start to cry and my husband, who's been watching me do this whole thing, has asked me what's going on. Um, and I tell him. And uh, he tells me to take the class. And he tells me, how bad can I be? <sighs> and he tells me, I'm not my mother. So the night of the first class, I am standing outside the Actors Center, and I am shaking. And I am chain smoking like a schizophrenic, and I don't smoke. <laughs> and uh, I am ready to bolt. In fact, I have already bolted like three or four times, but every time I get to the corner, I change my mind and then I go around the block. So I'm like circling around the actor center. <laughs> um, I am driving myself crazy before I even get inside the class that is supposed to drive me crazy. Um, <laughs> and uh, just then I, I see this tiny hunched figure coming toward me in the starry night. And it's Chris. And he's never seen me before, so I figure he'll just like go past me into the building, which he does. But right before he disappears, he turns back. And he looks me right in the eye. And he says, are you coming? And I say, yes. Thank you very much.
about some cottage cheese It reads February is when you should eat it by Look at the calendar, it's early May But you've never been this drunk before Oh, this high! And why would God have left it there If he didn't want it eaten? Oh, don't you believe in Christ? That was Ninja Sex Party digging deep into the theological angst that torments all who traffic in Kurds and whey. And by the way, Virginia Scott now teaches clowning at ChristopherBase.com. Well, by some odd coincidence, today's episode ends a lot like our last one did with the improvised musical storytelling of the insane Matt Higgins. He was backed here by the Risk House Band that we call Kevin Eubanks, featuring Jordan Cooper, Dan Luddy, Matt Koff, and no one named Kevin Eubanks. Now, this may be the strangest thing we've put on the podcast yet, folks. Matt Higgins with the Weed Days. spring morning I was taking my daughter to school We were super late So I flagged down a gypsy cab Down a gypsy cab We got into the gypsy cab I strapped my baby in the seat We drove down Broadway and I said Elwood Apple Goddess That's in Washington Heights That's in Washington Heights We passed Keenum's Pub It's closed now Cops Shut it down Cause they were Dealing coke Open the door I put my baby on the curb I said, be safe baby Don't run in the street Then I turned 
I looked in the back to see if I left anything. I do that from time to time. I don't ever leave stuff. My wife did today, but that's beside the point. I looked in the back. I looked in the back of a gypsy cab. And sitting there, right where I was sitting, was a sweet, sweet bag of weed. A sweet bag of weed. A sweet, sweet bag of weed. The green kind of minty kind. The red squiggles in it. Really coming if you put your thumb on it, it would stick. <laughs> Sticky green weed. Listen up. I hadn't smoked weed in like eight years. I had a little problem with it. A little problem. Yeah. 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 I picked up the weed. I put it in my pocket. Wouldn't want it to get in the wrong hands. Yeah. Here's the thing. When I smoked weed, I really loved it. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? I think some of you might. I think that God might. I think that God might. Yeah. I used to smoke it morning, noon, and night. He might. Morning, noon, and he might. At night. One time I smoked it before I went to work at a hotel restaurant. In the morning breakfast time. I said to my fellow waiters, I'm waiting on John John Kennedy. Isn't that cool? They said it's not John John Kennedy. It's some guy who works in accounting. I looked and they were right. He had a name tag that said, I'm not John John. It's a funny name tag. It's this thing on. Guess what? I went into the school with my daughter in my hand and the bag of weed in my pocket. I said, goodbye, baby. Goodbye, baby. Goodbye, bye, 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 b
she left I turned and started walking away Look at my shadow It'd be cool if I was high <laughs> But I'm not I heard a voice Mr. Higgins I turned It was the security guard She said, Mr. Higgins you gotta sign your daughter in, she was late. Oh! I thought I was busted, but I wasn't. I signed her in. I turned, I walked out of the school. The door shut behind me, I was on the steps of the school. I called my wife. I said, Hey, Trace, you're not gonna believe what I found in the back of a gypsy cab. She said, a wallet? I said, no. She said, a cell phone? I said, no. I'm in front of a school She said I'm not getting off the phone Till you get rid of the weed I said, oh yeah? Well, I hope you have an infinite number of minutes And I know you don't Cause we have the same plan She said, people, she said, people, poison weed. The weed could be poison, she said. People do that, you know, they poison weed. And they leave it in the back of Gypsy Head. As I turned onto Hillside Avenue, the same hillside that has a dumpster on it, 
the same dumpster that later on the weed would end up in as I walked on Hillside Avenue I thought to myself what am I really gonna throw away It's not just a bag of green sticky weed It's a bag of green sticky youth That's a thing I think I really want back Not the weed But the weed days But before I go I want to tell you something I made a New Year's resolution That this year I would start smoking weed again Just like many resolutions it hasn't been fulfilled But I forgive myself for that Hey if you're holding, you know what I look like. I'll be in the back. And together, we can continue my dilemma. My dilemma. My Created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are Jeff Mersel and Andy Croner. Our associate producers are Timothy Meehan, Emily Altman, Madison Perry, and Nina Moses. Special thanks to Adam Griffin for recording these hosting segments on this episode. And remember what the Hindus say about risk. If I speak, my mother will die. If I don't, my dad will eat a dog.